Thanks, everyone. <clears throat> you know, first service, the lights went out towards the end of the service, and uh, I had just made a little tiny joke about the Bengals, and instantly the lights went out right, right at that moment. So I think what God was trying to tell me was he loves the Bengals, and I shouldn't joke about them anymore. So <laughs> if you don't know it, I'm a Steelers fan. <clears throat> Boy, isn't, uh, yeah, okay, th thank you, thank you. Isn't this such a crazy season? I mean, with COVID and the elections and everything, it's just insane. I, I don't know how tired you are of it, but I'm tired of it all. And uh, my, my wife and I watch a show called The Good Doctor, and we were waiting for it to come back on. And so the first episode, I think it was a week ago, we saw the first five minutes, we saw that the first two episodes are going to be about COVID-19. And we looked at each other and said, nah, yeah. <laughs> Don't, don't, I don't need anything more on COVID. So we switched to a police show where I was pretty sure the good guys were going to win at the end. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're going to get through this. And I, I just want to say the day's going to come when this place is going to be packed with people again without masks on. Okay? That's going to happen. <clears throat> and, and our goal and our thinking and our preparation of prayers right now as a staff, and I want that to be yours too, is that we will be prepared for the, the new realities of our culture when COVID passes. And all of the people that are, are going to be eager to find relationship with Jesus and that are eager right now, but we don't quite have the same freedom of access with them that we will as that time comes. Now, as well, the whole election thing, isn't that crazy? Uh, you know, when will we know for certain? Uh, you know, in, in 2000, the year 2000, Election night, the press said Al Gore, the Democratic candidate, had won. And then later that night, they said, no, we were wrong. George Bush, the Republican candidate, has won. And actually, Al Gore conceded. And then later, they said, no, it's too close to call. And Al Gore uh, rescinded his concession. He, he had to call Bush back and say, <laughs> I'm rescinding my, my concession. I'm not conceding. And then they, ended, they went into this season of recounts in Florida, and Al Gore demanded that they do a hand recount, and it wasn't settled until December 18th, when the Supreme Court stepped in and made a decision that stopped the recount. And so I want to say this, we've been through this before. And our nation survived that, and we will survive going through this right now again. And this, this will all behind us, be behind us one day. Uh, here's, a, here's a couple of tips, though. Last night, uh, talking to a friend, he said that he's not checking the news every day. He said, it's happening too slowly. And here, I'm checking the news three or four times a day at that point. I didn't tell you that when we were talking, Mark, but I, I was. And so I, I'm cons I'm, I am now saying, I'm not going to check the news any more than once a day, okay? Because if you're checking the news more than once a day, you're probably way too involved in this at a heart level. And, and there's way too much chance of it just gripping your heart and, and drawing you off course. But... Um, Maybe once a day, maybe once every other day is okay. But uh, I heard a, a prophet from Scotland, a woman prophet named Emma Stark. And she said this, and she said this with all the love and compassion. You could tell in her voice that she was sincere. She said, I love America. And she said, I love the American church and American Christians. 
But she said, you know, she said, I think that the American church has tended too much to put its hope in someone that they hope has put their hope in God. You hear that? Again, she said that she thinks the evangelical church in America puts its hope in someone that they hope has put their hope in God. And her suggestion was, why don't you just cut out the middleman and just put your hope directly in God, okay? And so that's what we need to do. That doesn't mean that we don't think clearly about issues and vote, but uh, it, it does mean that we keep a free heart and we don't get, we don't get sucked into the whole thing. Now, about a month ago, I, um, I gave a message on repentance. Some of you were probably here for that, uh, maybe not all. But short, shortly after that, that day, uh, one of our prophets from the church here came up to me and he said, I was taking notes furiously. He said, I think you need to stay on this topic for a while. Well, as Nick pointed out, we had three guest speakers in a row. So I'm coming back to repentance this week and, and probably next week too. For the next couple of weeks, we'll be focusing on repentance. And I think it's, it's just a vital core issue for us to understand as believers. If we don't understand what repentance is, then we're going to have a wrong view of who God is, a wrong view of who we are, and a wrong view of what spiritual growth actually is, what spiritual growth itself is. And I think there are some mistakes that we make just in general uh, about this whole concept of repentance. I mean, if you hear me say repent, what, what picture comes into your mind? Does anybody picture some wild-eyed guy standing on a street corner with a sign that says, repent, the end is near? Uh, That's what the cartoons would say. But there is a tendency for us to think in terms of repentance as kind of like a a negative thing. God's mad at us, and we better repent. And if we repent, then maybe God won't be so mad at us again or any longer. Or maybe he'll, he'll, he'll relieve his anger if we repent. That's one misunderstanding of repentance. The idea that something, it's something I do to make God happier with me or to, for me to get credit with God. But another misunderstanding about repentance is that repentance should always be with sorrow. That, it's, that, that it leads to sorrow. And if you're going to be a repentant person, you're going to go around with a long face. You're going to be unhappy because if you smile or if you show joy, then people are going to think or God might think that you think your sin in your life is okay or that you think being imperfect is okay. And, and so that's a mistaken notion too about repentance because true repentance should always lead to joy. And I'm going to tell you why later. But... <clears throat> As well, there's the sense that repentance is turning away from an action. It's, I did this, God, I promise you, I won't do that ever again, that that's what repentance is. And repentance is not that. Repentance is, in fact, changing your mind about something. That's what the word literally means. It means to think after or to think again. And it means, you know, I I thought this way. Well, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to think this way. Now, it doesn't, it's not as simple as like, hey, I told you I wanted a hamburger. Is it too late for me to change and get a hot dog? Not that kind of change your mind. There's, there's a deep change that can happen in our hearts and in our minds when God reveals truth to us. 
Repentance is based upon a revelation of God's truth. It is a deeper insight into who I am or into who God is in com comparison to what I had thought God who he was. Or it might be a deep insight into who I am and a recognition that my attitude towards someone is wrong. And it's not the focus on the attitude, but it's focused on the fact that I have that attitude because I think something about myself, and I think I have the right, I'm smarter than other people, I'm wiser than other people, I have the right to have this attitude towards that person because. It's that foundational thought that is the thing that re God reveals to us that then has to be repented of. Uh, in, in my very first church, I'd been a pastor for just a few years, and I was trying to help a family through a problem they were going through, and I didn't do a very good job of it. I thought I was doing everything right. I mean, I called other older pastors and asked them, you know, what I should do, and did everything, you know, according to what everyone advised. Nevertheless, at the end of this whole thing, I got a letter in the mail, um, a signed letter from uh, the mother in this family, and she just really kind of read me the riot act. I mean, she just, just one thing after another about my character and about who I was and on and on. And I was like, um, I, I was just, I was taken aback by it. I was uh, angered. I, I was... Um, I was just really upset by the letter. Took it to my wife, and I said, can you believe? I was indignant. That's the word I was searching for, indignant. I said, can you believe she said this and this and this about me? I said, I'm going to go write a letter back right now. And my wife very wisely said, don't do that. She said, don't even reread the letter. She said, put it back in the envelope, stick it in a file in your desk. Wise woman, because she could have said, throw it away. She said, stick it in a file in your desk just leave it there. So that's what I did, all right? Ten years later is New Year's Day, and I'm having my quiet time, and I looked around my desk area, and I thought, you know what? I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to purge the files in this desk. So I started going through all the files I have and throwing stuff out, and I came across that letter. And I pulled it out, and I started to read it again. And I thought, whoa, she was right about that. And then, oh, Two sentences later, she was right about that. And then she called me a snake in the grass, and I thought, no, that's, that's not quite right. But uh, um, she was right about this as well. And it was all heart stuff. It wasn't what I had done, but it was you were proud. You know, you, you, you thought you knew everything. You thought you, you, you thought you had wisdom well beyond what you actually possessed. You lacked mercy. And different heart issues like that, that I had, to, I had to deal with. And honestly, it really was revelation from God at that moment in time. And 10 years earlier, I hadn't been ready to receive that revelation. At this moment in time, I was ready to receive that revelation. And it led me to repent. It led me to say, she was right. I, you know, I don't want to be that way, God. I don't want to think that I have this superior, I don't want to think that because I'm the pastor, someone should do what I say they should do. And, and just several things like that, that, that God worked in my heart at that moment that helped me to become a better leader, better, just a better person. And, 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 and to give up some control. I mean, God's worked on me over the years over just wanting to be in charge of everything and in control. But 
It was God revealing things to me about myself that did not line up with who he created me to be or who he called me to be. And I had to say yes to that. Now, if I had just stiffened my neck, if I had, ju- if I had said, well, that's not true, that can't be true, the source is wrong. She didn't write this letter with the right attitude, which I can't even judge that, but I could have thought that easily then I would have been rejecting revelation that God gave me at that moment that he gave me for my growth and so that I could become more who he wanted me to be and ultimately for my personal joy and peace in life. But if I had rejected it, that would have been the opposite of repentance. Instead, God had given me wisdom to to receive that and to see it and to repent. And hopefully then, my actions changed, and and my actions did change. But repentance is when God reveals truth to us. We see it, and we embrace it at the heart level. I embrace it, and I say, okay, God, I I believe you that that's who you say you are. And, and, And I'm going to embrace that at the depths of my heart, and and trust the by see what happens when we do that when we embrace God's truth it releases his power in our lives and God gives me revelation and I receive it it releases the presence of the Holy the strength and power of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I can walk the way he wants me to walk because you see repentance is not primarily an outward action it's not I've been mean to my wife. I need to be nice to my wife. From now on, I need to be nice to her. I'm going to put a rubber band around my wrist, and every time that I think of a mean thought towards her, I'm going to snap that rubber band until I reprogram my brain to think only nice thoughts. You see, it's, it's not just mental reprogramming. It's not a, a worldly way of cha- behavior modification. It is opening our hearts up for the Holy Spirit through God's truth and revelation to change our hearts. And that's what then changes our behavior. And so we saw this a couple weeks ago when I spoke on it, a month ago actually, um, that in Acts 2, Peter was preaching to thousands of people about who Jesus was. This was on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching this great message. And he tells them all who Jesus, who Jesus was, and here's, what, and here's who he was, here's what he did. You crucified him. And, and the people saw for the first time who Jesus really was. Now, many of them, perhaps thousands of them in that crowd, had seen Jesus heal people. Some of them in that crowd, I suspect, had been there when he fed the 5,000 or the 4,000. Some of them were there when he cleared the temple. Some of them were there when he healed the lepers. And they saw that. They heard him teach. Some were there for the Sermon on the Mount. But having been there, their eyes had not yet been opened to really see who he was. And now their eyes are opened and they see who he is. That is revelation. And they cry out and they say, what must we do? And what Peter answered was, repent, (laughs) repent. And what that meant was, you see this, you see this truth about him, now receive it. it. Let it come into the depths of your being. 
open your heart and receive this truth I've just shown you. It says 3,000 of them did it that day. And so repentance is um, it's really based on revelation from God. This is really crucial. It is based on revelation from God. It's not just, you know, I'm sorry because I'm doing this and I need to stop doing it. Might be a good thing to stop doing that. But real repentance is based on revelation from God that enables me to see life from heaven's perspective. And when I get heaven's perspective and I see it, then I choose to receive that revelation to the depths of my heart and being so that it becomes the basis for the decisions and life I lead. And this is the process God uses to grow us. Okay, this is the process. So anytime you're growing spiritually, repentance is involved. Repentance is involved. And so we need to get out of our thinking that repentance is this, this big scary thing that means God's mad at us and realize that as believers, it's, you know, God loves you. He's your father. He cares about you. And it's his way to nurture our hearts into alignment with his so that our actual lives then begin to line up with his. Because when you receive that truth, it, re it releases the presence and power of God in your life. Acts eleven eighteen says, they're talking about the Gentiles, and it says that God granted them the same repentance he did us, the repentance that leads to life. So repentance leads to life and to joy, not to sorrow, not to a, an extended period of me fretting over things or anything like that. And you know, Romans 14, 17, the apostle Paul said, the kingdom of God isn't eating and drinking. He said, the kingdom of God is what? It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so a third of the kingdom is joy. And so if I am truly repenting, biblically repentance, repenting, it should produce joy in my life. I remember the very hour that I had this major revelation theologically. I had based my life and my ministry on the belief that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were dead. There were no gifts of healing, no gifts of tongue, no, no prophecy. Uh, that the Holy Spirit worked in people's lives, but it was kind of like behind the scenes, and there was never any overt move of the Holy Spirit on a person's life that you could actually see or experience. And I, that, that was, that's what I believed about the Holy Spirit. And then God led me to read a book by a guy who had believed those same things, and he had moved out of that, it's called cessationism, meaning the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, moved out of that into believing in, in the Holy Spirit's work today. And I remember the moment in reading that book that read this chapter, I'm three or four chapters in, and I sat back in my chair and I thought, I could be wrong. I mean, this was a revolutionary thought to me because as I said, I had, I mean, I've been taught this in seminary, everybody, every pastor that I was friends with believed that way. And, and I sat back and I thought, I could be wrong. That was the Holy Spirit revealing something to me. But it was something that I had to say yes to. It was something that I had to say, okay, if I'm wrong, then God, I want to know it, and I want to base my life on truth. And fortunately, my wife never was a cessationist, although she never told me that <laughs> until this moment. And so uh, th that, that led us to say, well, if the gifts of the Spirit are still alive, 
and, and we have received that truth and trusted it, then we need to do whatever it takes to find out what that means. And we ended up leaving our home, resigning the church we were in, had four kids. The oldest was 15. Wilson was three at the time. And we moved to another city without a house to live in, without any jobs or anything, just because we wanted to learn about the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But it was opening our hearts up to that new revelation that released God's presence in our lives so that we could have this massive gift of faith to do all of that and just to walk into it. But repentance is not always a horrific, it's not always, it, it, like sitting there that day when I realized I could be wrong, I didn't then burst into tears. I didn't wail and scream or anything like that. I thought, this is pretty cool. You know, you know if, I, if I'm wrong about that, this is right, then I want it. I want to get in on that. And so it, it doesn't always have to be a huge emotional thing. But emotions can play a role in repentance. And sometimes, and rightfully so, repentance is a very emotional thing. But the display of emotion is not the equivalent of the repentance. And in the past, there have been segments of the church, I think, that have, um, have monitored the depth of the repentance based upon how, how, how much you wail in the process of, of praying over the repentance. But in Second um, Corinthians, there's a passage that tells us the difference between these. And in Second Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, um, they, they really had grace down. They understood grace big time. And when one of the members of the church, a, a person who was engaged, not, not just someone like walking in on a Sunday morning or anything like that, but someone who was part of the core of what was happening in the Corinthian church, ended up having an affair with his stepmother. And so he's sleeping with his father's wife. And the Corinthians were so clued into grace that they thought, well, hey, God's grace covers that, and let's just, just leave it alone. And so Paul writes to them and says, hey, you misunderstand grace, and you're misunderstanding righteousness, and you got to do something about this. You can't let this guy be, a, a, I'm just going to say, a leader in the church or a prominent person in the church representing Jesus when he's doing something like this. It's wrong. And so when Paul wrote to them all of that, it did cause deep sorrow in the hearts of the leaders of the church because they realized how much they had missed it and, and how they were actually condoning what this guy was doing and they had let him down by doing that. And so they go ahead and they talk to him about it and um, actually uh, tell him, you know, don't come back until you get this straightened out, something like that. And so the guy gets it straightened out and when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, which is what we're going to read, he had to tell the, the Corinthian church, uh, hey, you've gone overboard. I didn't mean, you know, kick the guy out. I, I meant get, help him to straighten his life out because the guy had straightened his life out and they wouldn't let him come back to church. And so he straightens that out with them. And then he writes this to them, okay? He says, I now rejoice. This is 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 10. He said, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So he says, I, it wasn't my goal to make you grieve over this. My goal was to see you take action about it. And so you were sorrowful, but your sorrowful let, sorrow led to repentance. 
For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. And so it means a godly sorrow. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, meaning you repent and you don't look back. You don't think, oh, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. But he says it it leads to salvation. And then he makes this statement. He says, but the sorrow the world produces, the sorrow of the world produces death. So there is a godly sorrow based upon revelation from God, who he is, what he wants to reveal to us, But there is also a worldly sorrow based upon human thinking, maybe my own personal code of ethics. Maybe I've decided that, you know, I might I might gossip, but I would never lie about someone. And and so, you know, I have a code of ethics that is just personal to me and I violate my own code of ethics. And, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm overcome with sorrow over that. Or I violate the code of ethics of the group that I'm part of. And, and I receive pushback from that group. And I experience sorrow because of that. But the code of ethics is not a heavenly code of ethics. It's just a human thing. So he says, human sorrow doesn't lead to true repentance. It leads to death. But he says, godly sorrow can be something that does lead to godly, true repentance. And so... When we look at this and we think about this, we need to realize that godly sorrow, true repentance, when God reveals something to us and we respond to that by, by embracing that truth, that it brings freedom and life. But worldly sorrow doesn't produce, based, based upon sentiment, maybe a guilty conscience, maybe something, maybe something that's totally wrong that I was taught as a child growing up, but I violate it and, and I have this sense of guilt over it, that leads to death because it's not based upon God's truth and God's revelation. And so I, you know, you look at this, it's important that we are able to distinguish these things so that we understand true repentance because that's how our minds are renewed and that's how we grow spiritually. I want to just compare uh, Peter and Judas just to compare godly sorrow to worldly sorrow. If you know the story, Peter, on the night Jesus uh, was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, Peter made these great boasts that uh, even, even though others might, be tr- might abandon Jesus, he never would. Jesus had just said, one of you is going to betray me to the 12, and all of you are going to abandon me. So Peter says, I will never abandon you, no matter what, I will not abandon you. And then he throws the other apostles under the bus when he says, these guys might abandon you, I won't abandon you, I won't. And so if you know the story, of course, later that night, Peter um, uh, tries to fulfill that when Jesus is arrested in the garden, Peter pulled his sword out and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. But he wasn't aiming for his ear, okay? He was trying to cut the guy's head off. This was a death blow. He, he wanted to kill this guy. And had Peter done that, there, were, there was a troop of temple guard right there that would have cut him down. Peter would not have survived that, except for the fact that Jesus told Peter, put your sword away, and he, and he healed the man's ear. But in Peter's worldly thinking, he was fulfilling his word to Jesus, I won't forsake you, I'll die with you. 
But what he lacked at that moment was true revelation on what Jesus meant when, when he called for people to follow him no matter what the cost. And so Peter gets that revelation later. He did have true revelation on who Jesus was. So you remember, Peter is the one when, they, when Jesus, uh, he had thousands of people leave him all at once over a message he gave where he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And they didn't understand it and they all left. He turned to the 12 apostles and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. So Peter had revelation and understanding into who Jesus was. And then when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he had that revelation solidly basing his life on that. But he didn't have further revelation about how he actually would be loyal to Jesus one day. Now, to contrast that, contrast that with Judas, who um, Judas decided to betray Jesus days before the Last Supper. It was a plan he had hatched. And it, it happened when there was a dinner and a woman came in and she brought in a very expensive vial of perfume. She broke it. And, and some people say this could have been up to a year's, a year's salary, a, a year of income the value of it. She broke it and she poured it on Jesus and Judas led the, led the outcry uh, the, and he got the other apostles into this to say that should have been sold and the money used to feed the poor. The, what a waste of the, the value of this perfume. What a waste. But it says in John that when he said that it wasn't because he cared about the poor, it was because he was the group treasurer and he used to take money out of, the, out of the common fund and steal money. So Judas was a thief. And Judas's problem was that he loved money. And Jesus said, you can't love money and God. Now, that's one point about Judas. You cannot love money and God. And he loved money enough that he was willing at that moment to be angry enough to, to, to leave the rest of the group and go to the high priest, go to the priests, and to offer Jesus up to them. That's when he did it, was right after that woman poured the oil, uh, poured that perfume out. And, um, and I think that, I mean, this is just my, my thinking. I wonder if Jesus, Judas didn't have a plan that when the money bag gets full, he's going to take off. You know, when there's enough in it, that, that he can actually live for a year or whatever. I mean, he was a thief. That's how thieves think. And so, since all that money was given up, Judas decides to find another way to get money. And he goes and he, he, he says he'll, he'll, he will sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, at the Last Supper, he, he's already done this. This is all done. And at the Last Supper, the same place where Peter says, though everyone abandons you, I won't. Jesus had just said, one of you will betray me, all of you will abandon me. Peter does his thing, and then Judas comes up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, surely not I. Now think about that. What does that tell you about Judas's perception of Jesus? At the very least, he thought he, he was smarter than Jesus. He could betray, he could, he could deceive Jesus. And Jesus has no idea that it's him. I mean, there's something about that, that that just opens up some clarity about Judas's heart. Later in the garden, he kisses Jesus. 
And Jesus says, friend, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I can't hardly believe that Jesus called him friend. But he did because of the grace and the mercy of God. And here Peter earlier, he had denied Jesus three times. And on the third time, and he's in the courtyard of the high priest when this happens. On the third time, Peter yelled and cursed, I don't know him. And just at that moment, they were leading Jesus out of the high priest's house. He's walking across the porch. He hears Peter cursing, I don't know him, yelling, I don't know him. And Jesus turns to look at Peter. Peter turns and, and Peter sees you know, Jesus. He looks, their eyes met. And then it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. But his sorrow was a godly sorrow. Now, Judas's sorrow that he, when, when Judas, in fact, he looks Jesus in the eye and he says, surely not I. When for Peter, all it took was just a, just a briefest moment of eye contact and it broke him because his heart was truly committed to Jesus. But Judas, on the other hand, he was able to look Jesus in the eye and say, yeah, it can't be me, can it? Surely not me. Surely not I. And, and, and then he comes down to this. I have betrayed innocent blood. You know, I, I don't want to read too much into this, but he didn't say, I've betrayed God's Messiah. He didn't say, I betrayed Jesus the Christ. He says, innocent blood. And have you ever heard of like that there, there, there's a code among thieves? You know, even thieves can have some form of a code of ethics. You know, for instance, I will steal money from people because if they're stupid enough to let me steal it from them, they don't deserve it. But I'll never hurt anybody. I would never harm any individual. There, there, that would be the kind of thing that a thief or someone in, in that realm of, of life might have a code like that. I suspect that Judas had some inner code like that, that he had lived by, that, that he, he'll take people's money, sure, but he'd never, he would never hurt anybody. And now when he sees that Jesus is going to be crucified, he goes off in grief, throws the money back into the temple, says, I don't want it, and goes out and hangs himself. Because his sorrow was a worldly sorrow. It was based upon human thinking. It was based upon human reasoning. It was not based upon revelation from God. And when, when, when we see that, it, um, it, just to look at it and just to say, you know, we all experience that at times. It's possible for any one of us to wrongly experience human sorrow and to mistake it for repentance. But I share this all with you just so we will know that we'll be able to search our own hearts and we'll be able to say, Holy Spirit, search my heart and show me, is this just me feeling bad about something? Or, or is, it, is it really you speaking to me, revealing something to me? But... Um, Sorrow can be part of repentance, but it doesn't necessarily have to be part of repentance. And I think that one of the keys here was in Psalm 51.4, David, after David had um, sinned with Bathsheba, and then he had Bathsheba's husband, um, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. And Uriah the Hittite was one of David's 30 mighty men. He had 30 soldiers who were the most loyal to him, like his personal guard that these were, the, these were the strongest warriors in the land who were gathered around David. Uriah was one of them. 
And so David having Uriah murdered was a horrific betrayal. And yet he was able to say, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And this can be the difference between worldly uh, sorrow and godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. It, it can be just this idea that David, I mean, I would say, David, what are you talking about? What about Bathsheba? Did you not sin against her? What about her husband? You had him murdered. You didn't sin against him. But what David was saying was, ultimately, ultimately, God, my sin's against you because you created me, you made me king, and I have betrayed that trust. I have not lived up to what you've called me to be. And, 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 and when I, I, did, I did hurt these people, they are your people. And so my sin ultimately is against you. And so somehow understanding that, I think Peter understood that, Judas didn't. And this as well, Romans 2, 4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You know, I think if Judas had really understood the kindness of God, maybe he would have handled his sorrow differently. But Peter did understand it. Peter comes out of this fully restored because it's God's kindness that leads us to turn back to him and to receive the revelation he gives us deep into our hearts so that it changes who we are and the way we live. And so what I want to say today is this. Just, just pray, God, speak to me. Reveal yourself to me more deeply. Just ask him that. In fact, we should live that way. Every day, that should be our heart attitude. God, there's stuff here I don't even see. Show me something. Show me something that, that I, show me some truth that I can embrace that will change me more into the person you want me to be. We should constantly have that as our prayer and just be sensitive of what God is speaking to us and, and, and receive it. One, one Sunday, it happens like this. One Sunday, I was sitting right down here. This is at least 10 years ago. And praises erupting in worship and praise and packed to the gills. And I'm sitting, I'm standing there looking around and thinking, well, this wasn't done right, and they didn't do that right. And why'd they play that song before that song? And, and, and you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And God spoke to me at that moment, and he said this. In the middle of, of my angst, he said, it's mine. Just that. And... I didn't have to hear anymore. I knew what he was saying. He was saying, Van, you're treating this like it's yours. You're acting like these people are yours and this is all yours, but no, it's mine. Something that simple can revolutionize your approach to life. When you embrace it, when you say, okay, I receive that, God. I want to live that out. I don't want to forget that. I'm going to make that, that's going to become part of who I am. And so we always need to have our ears open to what God wants to speak to us. Um, you're not respecting your boss. Or, or you don't really believe me when I say you're forgiven, so you're, you're still trying to earn my approval. Or you're not honoring your wife or your husband because you think you're smarter and you're not. You think you're the victim of other people's choices or of the devil these are all things that God can speak to us about that, that could be what God wants to speak to us about that would be revelatory to us that if I receive it, it will release the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in my life 
and lead me into life change that's going to produce a lot of joy and happiness and peace and outward living out righteousness in my life. So would you stand with me, please? This is about the point the lights went up because one of my points was you might be placing your happiness and joy in a sports team. I won't say any more than that. So, Father, we're thankful that, um, uh, well, Lord, first of all, you designed us to laugh. You made us to laugh. You made us to be joyful. And even repentance does not always have to be a, 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 an, an emotional, um, just an emotional wall that we hit or, or filled with terrible grief. Thank you, Father, that you're so kind. You're so good to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak, that you would j- just drop words into our hearts and our minds that would enable us, that, that we could embrace deep into our hearts that will change us and make us more who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.